Hello and welcome to our uh, midweek Bible study here at Celebration Church. Uh, greetings to those at our other campuses, those in small groups, online, all over the place. Let's all stand for those of you here. And uh, we will open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your gifts, your kindness, your grace. Thank you for the teachings we find in the scriptures. We pray, Lord God, that you'd open our hearts and minds to learn, to receive, to gain strength and encouragement from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, so we're getting to the end of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. He's hanging out at Ephesus, which is here. And uh, he's waiting here. He's staying here for quite a while. Writes a letter to them. And uh, this is that first letter. We're getting to the end of it. Most of the, a lot of it, the letter is, is atypical for a lot of Paul's writings. Most of Paul's writings dealt a lot with, um, you know, theology and practical Christian living and stuff. Not a lot on rules in churches per se. There was a lot of that in First Corinthians. Uh, some which we uh, obey still today, others we don't for a variety of reasons that we've already gone through. But uh, we're getting to the end of the letter now. As we get to the end of the letter, Paul goes back into his mode, his more typical mode of talking about theology, who we are in Christ, how all this happens, what's important about the gospel. He just talks about the gospel of Christ, just saying, listen, fundamentally, this is what it is. Jesus Christ died, he was raised again from the dead, and by putting our faith and trust in him, we are made right with God, and we have the blessings of God in our lives. <clears throat> but then there were some people in the church, uh, although we're not really sure how connected they were with the church. There's hints of maybe there was kind of an offshoot, weird brand. Anyway, uh, they were saying that, uh, that uh, people don't get raised from the dead. They did acknowledge, oddly enough, that Jesus was raised from the dead, but that's it. Nothing else happens after that. So that's where we pick it up in uh, the 15th chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians and verse 12. So Paul says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he ties very strongly to it. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Uh, And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he did raise Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins and, what are, and uh, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, talking about those who've died, are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now he's going to explain a little bit why he's saying this uh, to the uh, casual glance. You say, well, you know, Jesus could still be raised from the dead. Why, why do we have to be raised from the dead? But uh, the Bible's talking about Christ was the first fruits of the dead. And there is no first fruits if there's no other fruits, <laughs> all right? So he can't be the first fruit of the dead if there's nobody else that's going to be raised. So he says the one just cancels the other. And if there's no resurrection, then we're still lost in our sins. We've been preaching a false gospel because we've been saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if all we have for in this life is our hope in Christ, then we 
are of all people most miserable and to be pitied. Now, this is really in- interesting and unusual, but particularly from Western uh, Christian culture, American Christian culture in particular, because it would be easy to argue from our standpoint that the opposite is true, that even if there was no God and there was no Jesus, just following the teachings of Christianity gives you a better life than if you don't, all right? A lot of us know what that's like. We lived in the crazy ways and did all kinds of destructive things that come back to bite you and the addictions and the relationship destructions and the bitterness and the anger and all this other kind of stuff. So from one standpoint, you know, I remember thinking, you know, as an early Christian, man, this is awesome. <laughs> man, even if we don't go to heaven, this, this beats the snot out of what we were doing before, you know, because there's not a lot of joy in that. But from their perspective, these people suffered very intense persecution, deprivation. It wasn't easy serving Jesus, as it is for us. Uh, Hopefully that will continue, but, (laughs) you know. Now, the best thing we'd have, the closest thing to it would be if you think of the uh, Christians in uh, ISIS-held territories. They're losing everything. They're running for their lives. Their children are being molested and destroyed and their heads are being chopped off publicly and killed in horrible ways. They're nailing people to the cross, letting them die the horrible death of the cross. These people, they are suffering beyond measure. And in that context, if there's no resurrection, it sucks to be them, right? I mean, what was all that about? So this is kind of the context that he's talking about here is if this... If this isn't real, then why are we going through this? Again, difficult for us because really we are very, very blessed, as you all know, to live in this country and uh, in most Western countries where Christianity has had a major impact. Uh, Our lives are incredibly blessed just following the teachings of Christ. But when you're paying a very dear price, you lose everything you've worked for, you fear for your children, you fear for your own life, People are being killed and destroyed and stuff. And there's no Jesus? Wow. And this is the kind of period that they're going through. You have to remember first century Christianity uh, had waves of persecution that lasted, you know, they kind of come and go uh, throughout the Roman Empire until finally the Roman Empire itself was uh, capsized and Christianity was proclaimed the official religion. quite the turnaround, but uh, they suffered very, very greatly. So that's why he's saying, if, if just for this life, if there's no Jesus, then what are we doing? All right, so then he goes on and says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man and, right, and resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Since, since death came through a man, resurrection from the dead also comes through man. So now he's going to use this really neat analogy, this symmetry of the story of salvation and redemption is really rather stunning. Through one man, this whole thing went sideways. Adam. He turned his back on God, decided to rebel against God. Through Adam, sin came into the world. Mortality, death, all the ickiness of it. So through one guy, messed it up. The beauty of salvation is through one man, it got all straightened back out again, which was Jesus, the Christ. So he made right what Adam had made wrong. 
Adam brought death, Jesus brings resurrection from death. All right? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, the reason he's called the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him will be raised. See? Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to, the, to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. We'll get into that when we get to the book of Revelation. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And now it says that everything has been put under him. It is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Did you follow all that? Everything is under Jesus, uh, you know, uh, and Jesus under God, although there's still the one and the same. The Trinity will give you Headaches if you try and figure it all out. <laughs> but, uh, so that's all he's saying there. Now, he goes on. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, this is probably the single greatest, bizarrest, unexplained verse in the New Testament. Virtually all theologians, when they get to this one, go, I don't know what he's talking about, all right? Now, some have great theories, and they are just wild guesses. They come up with kind of some interesting theories of what he's talking about. Some saying, well, baptism for the dead means, you know, we're supposed to be baptized into the suffering of Christ, and some of us will be martyrs, and if there's no baptism for the dead, those will be martyrs, and this doesn't make any sense. It's kind of a bit of a stretch to try and terribly to make sense out of this. Uh, we don't really know what he's talking about. Uh, we don't baptize for dead people. There's very little evidence that anybody in uh, fundamental or basic Christianity has ever done this. Mormons, by the way, do this. Uh, if you go to Ancestry.com or any of those things, those are all owned by Mormons. And the reason is, is they're so into Ancestry because they want to figure out where everybody came from. So that when you convert to Mormonism, then you go through your family tree and then you're baptized for all those people when you get baptized. Uh, there's some evidence in early Christianity, second uh, century or so, of some small sects that did some baptizing for dead. Okay, we don't know where it came from. Probably the most telling part of this phrase is Paul's always talking about us, we, the church, okay? But notice what he says here. If there's no direct resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So he's not talking about us anymore. He's talking about those people. See, that's that hint that there's, he might be addressing some weird sect of people who are saying people don't get raised from the dead. And then he's saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why do they even baptize for the dead if those are asking for the dead? So that's about as close as we can get to making any kind of sense out of it. Uh, I basically find my rule of thumb is you get to something about Bible you don't understand, just skip it and move on. All right, uh, I, I, I don't think the scriptures were written in a way that you need to have advanced doctrinal theologies and be able to speak five or six different languages fluently to understand the Bible. That is not the way this was written. Why? You know, you remember, he's writing him a letter. It's like if I have a conversation with Randy and we talk about some weird people. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, we do that all the time, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, people who walk around with bananas on their heads, I don't, you know, whatever. You know, all those weird banana people, what's with those people? You know? So later in a letter, I write to Randy about the banana people. Nobody would know what you're talking about. We call them the banana people, right? Or, or uh, here's a better analogy, cheeseheads, okay? So 2,000 years from now, people pick up, and there's no supporting, you know, it wasn't, of course, it's not to get everybody writes in books, but let's assume that writing is a very rare thing. There was no publishing. There's no print, printing presses at this point. But let's say it's like that down. And people refer to it as cheeseheads. Can you imagine someone writing a letter uh, from the Chicago area and then making a reference to those stupid cheeseheads up north? Well, I can imagine these theologians thinking, oh, were their people's heads actually made of cheese, you know? You see what I'm saying? They're, they're trying to, they think so hard, they're trying to understand everything. Clearly, he's referencing something. They all know what he's talking about. We do not. But here's a good lesson here. The scriptures teach us, actually, one of the fundamental uh, things about uh, knowing something comes from God is what the phrase called in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Uh, in fact, Jesus often referred, he says, man, if I go around testifying about myself, my testimony doesn't mean anything. Anybody can go around talking about themselves. His greatest testimony came from John and from the miracles and all these things. They all testify of me. It's God's, you know. So you can't, if, if you take one verse in the Bible that implies something, if there are no other verses that support it, you blow it off. It's just that simple, Okay. There are no other verses anywhere in the scripture that references how to deal with the spirits of the dead or to baptize for the dead or any of that kind of stuff. Therefore, ergo, we just ignore it, all right? When we talk about doctrines that we feel strongly about, you should be able to go to three, four, five, six different places in the Bible that talk about it, support it, support it, support it, support it, support it. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and then we... Uh, then you have something. I was talking about Sunday. One of my pet peeves, you know, when I was talking about single people, is this, this nonsense that there's this one special person for everybody, which is blatant nonsense. But there is one verse in the Bible. Abraham's servant was praying, oh, Lord, help me find the one. Because he had the job of going to find a cousin for Isaac to marry, and, and he's begging Abraham, man, don't send me. I don't know where I'm at. My Google's not working, you know. I, yeah, his GPS was down. I mean, how are they supposed to find? Go in the middle of the desert and find a bunch of people. He doesn't know. They had no way of knowing anything. They were just walking and riding on donkeys, and there were no Googles. <laughs> no GPS. He's freaking out. So, Lord, let me find the one. So, anyway, from that one verse, Christians have bought into this idea, which is a secular concept. There's just one special magical person for everybody. But no. There's not. Now, some people will point to that and say, yes, the Bible, but this one verse, you don't build a doctrinal concept, which is what the church has done with single people, from one verse of a guy who's not even, we don't even know the guy's name. And in the Old Testament, people prayed all kinds of stupid stuff. Right? Just because a nitwit, we don't know his name, prayed some goofy prayer, doesn't mean this is doctrine. What we do know is what I was preaching on Sunday. He who finds a wife, a wo woman of noble character, who can find, searching, looking, taking. All these verses, over and over, these words describe how to take a wife, a husband, whatever. None of that, except in that one obscure place, references that. Therefore, we blow it off.
We don't listen to that nonsense, okay? Uh, any kind of doctrine. This idea of taking one verse in the Bible and pulling all kinds of nonsense out of it uh, is very destructive. That's where you get cults and all kinds of weird people doing all kinds of nutty things. I remember when I was <laughs> 300 years ago when I was 15, 16 years old, uh, and uh, LSD was the rage, okay? It was, what's this LSD? Oh yeah, it's even in the Bible. Right? Because in Revelations, Jesus says, there's a stone I will give you that no one will know what is in that stone. You know, so that's, that's the prophecy about LSD. A little bit of a stretch, to say the least. But you know, I mean, it's just, it's just stupid. Oh man, it must be God's will. Because they found some obscure verse. You can't take obscure verses and make sense out of it. Just stupid things that people do. I heard one preacher, this was 100 years ago, talking about how the Bible prophesied about nations having the A-bomb. Because the Bible talks about abominations. I mean, how can you be so stupid and still breathe, right? So he says the word abomination, if you break it down, means A-bomb in nations. Of course, this brilliant individual didn't realize the Bible wasn't written in English. <laughs> so, so you just, whenever somebody pulls some first that you kind of go, wow, I didn't know that, check it out. See what else is there. I've been drilling this on for several weeks. Don't just believe something anybody tells you, including me. And I promise you, half my church would believe almost anything I tell them if I just say, that's what the Bible says. I wouldn't even have to read it because it wouldn't exist. You know. The Bible says you're supposed to hop on one foot when you pray. You have no idea. Hundreds of people in our church would be praying all by themselves going like this, praise the Lord, oh Lord. You know, trying to ask. Don't listen to anybody without checking it for yourself. When I give you something and, 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 you, and you're familiar with the scriptures, you can see we're reading it, even then, it's good to go back and read it. Read it in context. That's how you grow in your faith and your understanding. So well, that means I might disagree with you on something. That's okay. <laughs> you can say, you know that verse, I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, we can have a discussion about it. But uh, just, so anyway, just be careful about that. So this is a, this is a classic place uh, there's no support, no other mention anywhere in the scriptures about baptizing dead people or for dead people. Da-da. All right. Now he says, as for us, notice the difference between he talks about them and us, see. So, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, if there's no, no resurrection, what are we doing this for? See, again, different than our experience. Because I would argue in our culture, there's great benefit from just following. Man, like I was quoting on Sunday, the studies that show people who go to church more than once a week, that would include all of you, actually live longer than people who don't. They have less problems. Less, all the, it just drops dramatically. And it's as predictive as you can possibly be. I guarantee you, almost, almost, almost always, the people who come to us with the biggest problems are the ones who only come to church either on Sunday or occasionally. That's okay, well, we love them, we're trying to help them through it and trying to help them grow, but you start really getting the stuff in you, it changes your life. It makes your relationships better, you have better health. You don't do stupid things, all right? 
And as a result, I'd say our lives are dramatically better. You even live longer uh, in our culture following Christian things. In their lifetime, the converse was true. <laughs> Life would be dramatically shortened because somebody's going to kill you if they find out what you believe, right? Again, it's like if you were in ISIS-held ter- territories. So it's a whole different ballgame. So he's saying, why do we endanger ourselves if, if there's no thing? He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Now, we didn't know anything about this. Apparently, this was a bad day for him. I don't know what wild beast he's talking about, but was it a bear? Was it a lot? I don't know. He's fighting for his life. And what's really interesting, he says, he fought with no more than human hopes. In other words, he just had to fend it off by himself. It's like, hello, God, where are you at? Now, have you ever noticed that sometimes God just shows up and intervenes in your life? And other times, it's like he's on vacation in Hawaii. <laughs> Why is this? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes God just wants you to suck it up and fight your way through it and beat off the beasts. You know, if I'm Paul, I'm yelling, where you at? <laughs> Wild dog bite my leg. I mean, I don't know what's going on here. You know, I'm just, I just got my human hopes. I'm trying to fend the stupid idiot off. Whatever beast it was, I'd love to know the diesel, but we don't know. Anyway, he had a really bad day. It sucked. Who knows how beat up he got from it. Man, if, why am I doing this stuff, he says. If the dead are not raised, this is what he suggests. Next verse. Let us eat and drink. Next, keep going. For tomorrow we die. I mean, that's just, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, because again, Christianity costs you a lot in this culture, and there's cultures in the world today, it still costs you a lot. If this isn't real, if there's no heaven, what are we doing? Man, let's just party. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die. Again, different for us today. So anyway, he's really getting intense here about this argument for the resurrection. He says, don't be misled. (laughs) And he kind of slams the people that that are giving him this information. He said, bad company corrupts good character. Something you want to teach your children, by the way. Bad company corrupts good character. You want to hang with the right people. You want to hang with good people. There were certain kids, we didn't want our kids hanging around. Why not? Doesn't matter, why not? Just, I disapprove. So he says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. And then he continues, he says, but someone asks, well, how are the dead raised? (laughs) I don't know. I guess people just have questions. I don't know why. But how? How does it happen? What kind of body will they come with? He said, how foolish. What you sow does not come back to life unless it dies. He's talking about, you know, you take some corn or something, whatever, you plant, it basically dies in the ground and then all of a sudden comes to life in a whole different form than when you stuck it in the ground. If you put a kernel of corn in the ground, you don't water and tend it and come back someday and there's just this big fat kernel there. Right? That's not the way it works. It comes back Differently. He's basically arguing that that's the way it works in all of nature. 
those gigantic trees you see everywhere, didn't start out that way. A little tiny seed. And, and the big one is the mustard seed, right? I mean, it's one of the smallest seeds ever, and yet becomes one of the biggest trees. Uh, it's stunning. So he says, what you sow doesn't come back to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just as a seed, perhaps, of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body he has determined, and to each kind of seed he will give its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. Fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon has another. The stars another. And the stars differ from stars to star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. So what he's trying to, you know, because they're trying to figure it all out, he said, well, you can't figure it out. You don't know what it's going to look like. Nobody knows what it's going to look like. You get a little bit of a hint with Jesus. Uh, when he's raised, he's raised literally physically from the dead, but in, with a glorified body. Uh, remember, he could be, one minute he could be in a room that's closed, door, and boom, there he is. <laughs> Next minute, he's gone. Uh, another time he's walking around with the disciples, they don't even recognize him, so he barely could change his form. I mean, I don't know. I mean, pretty cool bod, right? So well, apparently someday we're going to have this glorified body that's going to be capable of many great things. And... Uh, you don't have to threat too much about, fret too much about what it's going to look like. The good news is, is we come out looking a lot better than we went in. <laughs> Praise be to God. If I come out looking like this, I'm going to be really bummed. Ah, I'm still the same. You know, no, we, we get upgraded. Big time upgrades, okay? As beautiful as you are, all of you. When you kick it and come back, you're going to be like the, the yo mama version of you. So, If there was a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? Jesus. All right, so the Bible talks about it. That's the analogy. The one that brought death, the one who brings life. Often referred to as the second Adam in, in Paul's writing. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second was of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have, been bo have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why you gotta die. Everybody has to die. You cannot get there in this. The reasoning for that, if you look at lots of the theology that Paul talks about, this body has been poisoned by sin. I think all of you, it doesn't take long to be a Christian before you sense that. You know, all of a sudden, you, come, you ask Christ in your life, your spirit comes alive, it's what's called being born again, you have a new outlook on life, you have all this energy and stuff, but there's, and you get baptized, all this stuff, but there's still this part of you that wants to do wrong. It just is. I don't know. Well, I do know why. It's just because I've been poisoned by sin. I mean, it's just crazy. It's so frustrating. You'd be worshiping God one minute and think, you know, I want to punch that guy in the face the next. Right? What is that? That's the flesh. 
It's that flesh. There's the spirit part of you who would just like to stay up all night tonight and pray. Your physical body about 11 o'clock says, I've had it. I'm out of here. Checks out. All right? Your spirit would say, man, let's, let's fast for a week. Your natural body says, are you crazy? It's been 20 minutes since we've eaten. I'm starving. All right? It's your spirit that wants to bless people. It's your flesh that wants to curse people. It's your spirit that wants to hug people. It's your flesh that wants to punch them in the face. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, as Christians, what we're supposed to do is build up that spiritual part of us. Because if we build up that spiritual part, it will dominate us. If you don't, your flesh will reassert itself. And it's just that simple. Your flesh will reassert itself in ways that you thought were long dead. And uh, it's not dead. It's still there. Uh, and we'll come back. You'll start acting in ways you shouldn't act, thinking in ways you shouldn't think. Uh, and you can try all you can, and you're, oh, I got to stop, I got to What you need to do is build up your spirit. You need to read the scriptures. You need to pray, think spiritual thoughts. How about instead of watching shows where everybody's killing people, you know, how about you pray for a while? <laughs> or uh, listen to some worship music instead of shake your booty baby or something. You know what I'm saying? You, you listen to shake your booty up, baby, all you're going to be thinking is about, man, look at the booty on that baby. Okay, that's what's going to happen in your head. Yes, I know, it's hard to imagine a spiritual man having that thought. It's exactly. That's what you got to emphasize more of the spirit than of the flesh. Anyway, that fleshly part of you is beyond redemption. We have no idea. When we, as a, as a, as a being, as, as a race, from Adam fell into sin, see, because we're always like this. We don't get what the big deal. We, we reek we reek in our flesh, our fleshy part, really to God. I mean, there's, there's no way we can get into heaven because everybody goes, oh man, what is that? <laughs> okay, it's that, it has been so poisoned. It is, and it has caused you to do the things that you now regret and have asked God to forgive you for. And frustratingly, still pops up. And to which you still have to repent. And you still feel awful. How can I feel this way? How can I think this way? How can I process? Why would I do this inappropriate thing? And then, uh, you know, it's just, it's always there. The good news is this dies, <laughs> which is also the bad news. We got to die because flesh and blood cannot inherit, Paul says, the kingdom of heaven, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We don't get in this way. Uh, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all be changed. Now, this is kind of interesting here because the scriptures talk about this in, in two ways that get a little confusing, uh, to say the least. Um, on the one hand, Paul says to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Okay. On the other hand, it talks about when we're buried, we sleep, and, and we don't really become you know, fully alive until the resurrection. What's the despair, the, the difference? Uh, what we believe that means is that when we die, immediately our spirit goes to be with Christ. But it's still not the full experience that you should be having, okay? God made us body, soul, and spirit on purpose. We're made in the image of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a triune being. We are all triune beings, but yet we're one, Right? Your body, your soul, your spirit, that's all it makes you. When you die, the spirit and your consciousness goes in the presence of the Lord, people who, you know, die and come back to about how wonderful and stuff like this. But they're still kind of just, you know, I don't know how to describe it, kind of like Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't know. 
<laughs> you know, you're still not really complete until resurrection. When the resurrection comes and your new body comes out and boom, you are now joined with that body, we will be the kind of creatures we will be throughout eternity. You will not just be a floating spirit throughout eternity, if that makes any sense. All right, so he says, we will not all sleep, but we all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. It's a very famous verse of scripture, by the way. In a flash and in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, which is this dying part, must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal, that which will die, will be clothed with immortality. There's going to be quite a dramatic uh, change for us. Uh, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. All right, so that whole chapter 15 is really about the doctrine of resurrection that Christians uh, believe in. Uh, one of the reasons why historically Christians have not engaged in... Uh, um, <laughs> what do they call that when you, when you die and they toast you? <laughs> Cremation. One of the reasons why historically Christians haven't done cremation. And I say, is that wrong? No, there's no place that you can find that it's wrong. There's uh, examples in the Old Testament uh, of it. Uh, there's emotionally, psychologically, it's, it's almost better than trying to process your loved one being put in a box and stuck in the ground kind of thing. But the reason why historically uh, Christians have not done this, even though other cultures did. Some do, and again, there's no condemnation. Uh, it's just out of respect for the body. We respect the body because of what we believe will happen on that great day. We don't toast it, but even those will be resurrected. So it's, <laughs> but that's why we do it. They didn't uh, uh, cremate Jesus. They put him in a tomb. We want to be as much like Christ as we possibly can, hence that. Now, if you say, hey, I'm going to toast myself on the way out, God bless you, I'll do your funeral, all right? It'll be fine, but I'm just saying this is why Christians historically have given such uh, great respect to the bodies of the dead, because we think in terms of like Christ was buried, so we are buried, and knowing uh, what shall happen, all the respect for uh, the body. Although now some would say, well, we still give that same res respect in cremation. So I, again, I don't have a problem either way. I'm just telling you historically, that's why Christians haven't done that. Uh, in either case, um, there should be respect for the body. All right. All right. So now we get to chapter 16 and he's basically wrapping up the letter. Uh, he's away now from all this uh, theology and rules and yelling at him for... <laughs> The myriad stupid things they were doing. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Uh, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, 
Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, they're, they're, they're taking money to help the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. And they're going to go to help them. They're in financial straits. Now, why they are in financial straits is, is kind of interesting to me. Uh, remember, these are the guys, when they first got saved, they all sold everything they had. And they all gave it to the church, and they're living in this big commune because they thought Jesus was coming right back. <laughs> well, at some point, uh, the commune goes through all, all the money. <laughs> now you got Jack, you know, and whatever assets they had are gone now and been consumed. So uh, this, one of the reasons, I mean, it's hard to argue that the first century church, I mean, this was the first exercise in communism. <laughs> These people literally sold everything, everybody. It would be like all you all sold your homes, everything you have, all your 501, 401, 501, A, B, C, D, E, F, Gs, whatever, saving accounts that you have, all that stuff, and you come and you, you bring it to the church which would be a lot of money, all right? But then we all are living here in the church, <laughs> which would be really creepy. <laughs> and then, you know, intense around the property and stuff because Jesus is coming back. Now, on the one hand, it's really lovey-dovey because we all care for each other so much, we just, whoever needs money, we just give it to them. Well, the problem with that plan is you run out of money, okay? So I don't know if that's why they're in deep finance. I have no idea. I'm sure somebody knows, but uh, certainly that was not long-term <laughs> thinking. And that's why we don't tell people to do that today. All right? Now, we should encourage you to, to give as much as you can comfortably give, uh, but you losing your jobs and quitting and everything to come hang out in the commune all day is just going to eventually end Oh, the first few months would be awesome. Because <laughs> we'll just praise the Lord all day long and cooking out and grilling steaks and, you know, and some days like, oh my gosh, there's nothing left. So that's, that's why we don't do that. All right, so. Uh, on, on, now notice what he says in, in verse two. On the first day of, the, of every week, um, it's been noted that the disciples would get together on the first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday. Now, that's why uh, the Christian holy day, if you will, the Christian Sabbath, if you want to use that word, which is really, it's not a true Sabbath. Uh, these Seventh-day Adventists are correct and the Jews are correct that the Sabbath technically is Saturday. It's always been Saturday. How come we don't observe, observe that? Two reasons. One is they were meeting on the first day of the week and that just became the standard for Christianity. And secondly, we don't really have a Sabbath. One of the things about the Christian experience which we will see later in Paul's writing is uh, we don't observe the Sabbath. We're living the Sabbath. Uh, every day is the Sabbath for us because we've rested from our work. We're, in the, we're resting in Christ and the joy and the peace and stuff. That we, you know, It's kind of like we're all semi-retired in a sense. <laughs> I mean, we're still working, but not working in our own righteousness. And so the idea of the Sabbath per se uh, is not a, a strong concept uh, that we follow today. Now, 
some argue that we should still do it. Um, some of the Adventists would do that. Uh, there's others who would argue that uh, it doesn't really matter what day, that you still, still should pick one day where for 24 hours you produce nothing. That it's healthier for you, it's better for you, they have biblical reasons for it, and they go all of that. The problem with it is by the time they're done, it becomes legalistic. And we don't live by the Old Testament rules. We just don't. What about the Ten Commandments? You know, all these Christians fight, you know, we went to the Ten Commandments in public squares. I mean, I get it. It's great that you're advocating for righteousness and stuff. But it's odd that Christians do that because we don't live by the Ten Commandments. We, we, you know, thou shalt have no, no graven images. Well, how many of you got, you know, garden gnomes in your lawn and, you know, crosses and all, I mean, they weren't supposed to have any of that stuff. That's one of the commandments, you know, working on the Sabbath, you know. Well, nobody even does that anymore. So, you know, some of these things are still tied. That's all still the Old Testament law. Now, what Paul says is the New Testament is God writing his laws on our heart, that the law of love overwhelms all this. And the reason it fulfills it, because, well, what about lying and stealing and cheating? He says, if you love people, you don't do that to them. That's why we don't get into that. And the whole thing about the one day, the only way to really approach that day is to be very legalistic about it. From this time to that time, what you can do, what you couldn't do. Remember, they're all, the Pharisees were all over Jesus all the time, yelling at him because he'd heal somebody on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Why? Because you can't do anything on the Sabbath. He said, what are you talking about? See, they made it into something it wasn't. And they had the rules about what you could do. So anyway, just we don't. I think it's good, certainly healthy. I can buy into that, that you not work seven days a week for your entire life. You know, slow down a little bit, relax. Uh, but uh, as Christians, the Sabbath, as technically done on Saturday, we do not observe. People want to know why? It's because clearly the church would gather on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Why? I don't know. Part of the problem, quite frankly, reason is because on the Sabbath, they couldn't do anything. Because they were observing the Sabbath, they had to wait till the first day of the week to all get together. Because you couldn't walk very far on the Sabbath. So it was the very idea of observing the Sabbath is why they met on Sundays. You know, it's, it's very fascinating. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll get into that because he gets into a whole argument about that. Although, if, if I remember correctly, he does offer those. It's a matter of conscience for some they do want to honor the Sabbath. We don't get on people for that. They want to make one day holier than another. Paul talked about that, you know, so whatever. But in general, uh, we uh, don't do that today. Now, historically, throughout the last 2,000 years of Christianity, particularly in the Catholic Church and stuff, not only did they have the Sabbath, which was Sunday, which you had to, but they also added other Sabbaths constantly. You know, we call, they call them holy days of some of you Catholics, in other words, obligation, remember? The holy days of obligation. It's a day of obligation where you had to, so they had their own, so they added, man, a good hardcore Catholic, hardcore from old, old school Catholic, man, you had all kinds of Sabbaths. There's all kinds of stuff you had to do all the time. But uh, when, you, when the Reformation came and stuff and they started getting back to just what the scripture says, they started pulling away from those kinds of things and even Catholics don't get real heavy on that stuff anymore. All right, so that's that. What was the other thing I was going to make? About? Oh, the other idea is that people say, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about tithing, the New Testament. 
Well, it does actually, uh, in a couple of places that literally uses the word, um, but you know, it's, it's not a hardcore legalistic thing like it was in the law. You had to give a tenth of everything as a law. But even the idea of tithing, the percentage is still there because Paul says this, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. It's your income. Your income decides how much you give. You're into a percentage type thing. Say, well, I don't think I can give 10%. Well, they get five. You know, don't throw 20 bucks in and represent one-tenth of 1% of your income. That's not giving very much, okay? So the idea, certainly, of a percentage is very clear. Uh, We can debate the percentage. I just highly doubt that God's standard was to let people just keep more money so they keep it for themselves. (laughs) It's just... This is a little inconsistent with biblical teaching, I think. But in any event, that was the idea. So we see uh, this idea of meeting on the first day, giving in keeping with your income, uh, and then giving this money for the Jewish people that were in trouble. He says, that then, if you'll do this and set aside the collection, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the man you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So he's just trying to say, look, we're, we're trying to get this collection together and uh, start saving it up. He says, now after I go through Macedonia, I, I will come to you for I will be going through Macedonia. Uh, perhaps I will stay with you for a while and even spend the winter there so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. So he said, you know, I don't want to come now because I couldn't spend much time, you know, and, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Uh, But I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me, which we're going to see when we get back into (laughs) into, uh, uh, the book of Acts here. He runs into a wall of some serious opposition, which is a really entertaining account. Probably not for him when he's going through it, but uh, it's pretty dramatic what happens to him uh, there. Um, so he's basically talking about his travel plans. Now, as far as we know, he never did any of this. Uh, I don't think he ever went back to Corinth. Uh, from there, he comes down here. Uh, he winds up at some point getting arrested. Uh, I don't know, maybe he does make another run here. We'll get into it anyway. But uh, he has third missionary journey. yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think he goes back anymore. We're in his third missionary journey. So anyway, uh, there's no, I don't think we read any more of him going back, but this is what he wanted to do. And he says, you know, if the Lord permits. So, you know, God's will, I'd like to do it. I don't want to come and just spend a little bit of time. They wanted to really stop, come by when he could spend some time because they liked fellowshipping with each other. I saw this great, great routine by a comedian the other night. It was hilarious. Uh, and I won't do it justice, but the, the, the thing of it was, he says, culture has changed so much. Some of you remember this. When we were raised as kids and someone would knock on the door, everybody got excited. Oh, somebody's here. We got company. We got company, you know, and, and you come and, and here's the company and sit down and, and then they brought out the good food, right? And the nice snacks because you don't normally eat those snacks because those are for Company. You don't touch that stuff. Because people were actually sat around kind of waiting for company to show up. 
and they would have the nice snacks, and everything's all set, and everybody got together, and, and you talk, and you just, oh, it's so good to see you. How come it's been so long? And you eat, and you share, and then you, they leave, and I'm so sorry to see you go. Listen, we'll come over, we'll spend some time so you guys can have some company, you know? And it was like a big part. A lot of you raised, you know, 100 years ago like me, you know, remember growing up in that culture where company was an exciting thing. Someone knock on the door, man, all the kids are, oh, somebody's here, ah! And they all run. It was like a, it was like a big deal. Today, someone knocks on the door, and everybody tries to hide. You know, and they're all like, you know, Shh, get down. They can see you. You know. So now somebody shows up. It's really an inconvenience because most people they don't want company, and uh, it's really he does it in a hilarious fashion. But uh, I'm just laughing, listening to the thing. I thought, my goodness, it's really true. Our culture has changed so much. Uh, we are we are people who less and less want to spend time in the company of other people. Uh, sadly, it, it hurts us. I think, uh, according to that study about people go to church a lot and actually live longer, it's because they're more inclined to spend time with other people. It's healthier for you, and it's a good thing. You know, now someone knocks on the door and says, Answer the door. I don't want to answer. You get somebody. Hey, somebody answer them. Nobody cares now. You know, they're all fighting about who has to get off the chair to go see who's there. All right? Whereas back in the day, it was, oh, someone's here. Ah! And okay, they, you know, it's very, very different. So anyway, Paul's saying, hey, I don't want to come over unless I get time to spend some company time. All right? All right. Okay, that, 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 that. Now, when Timothy comes, we'll be hearing more about Timothy. Uh, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt, send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. All this is just kind of housekeeping. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite willing, unwilling to go now. I don't want to go, so he didn't go. But as it goes when he has the opportunity, I, you know. When I'm reading this, I'm thinking, what do you have to do? Right? It's 2,000 years ago. Like there's anything good on TV, you know what I'm saying? And it's, you know, your schedule isn't jammed and your iPhone isn't ringing all the time. And, you know, nah, 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 I don't want to go right now. I got stuff to do. Like what? I have no idea. But apparently he had something to do. Here you go. Be on your guard, he says. Stand firm in the faith. Why do you need to be on your guard? So many reasons. I'll give you three of them. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It'll pull you back. It'll always be nipping at your heels. If it's not your flesh that we just went through and talked about, all that tries to pull you down. Man, the world will be trying to pull you down. They're always snipping at you and always trying to seduce you, to draw you away. Oh, come here. Take a look. It's shiny. It glows. You must have this right away. You know? And, uh, you know, and then if it's not the world, the flesh, then there's always the devil who hates you with a degree of hatred none of us can even begin to comprehend. At times you see it in human beings, you know, like I'm a history buff. I love reading history and war, you know, war stories and things like that. And, you know, World War II and you read of the genocide of uh, 
of these people on the Jewish people. You know, how, how can you, how do you kill, you know, sad in the Green Bay area, you know, somebody was murdered over in Bellevue where I live. You know, shocking to the community, you know, killing one person out of passion, so I'm sure there's, you know, crazy. But how do you just intentionally kill millions, millions of people, children, old people? I mean, just what kind of hatred lives in the heart of men that could do such a thing? All that's born out of the heart of Satan. And he pretty much feels that way about all of you. He hates you with a hatred that you can't even begin to comprehend. And if it wasn't for the fact that when you come to Christ, he puts a wall of protection around you, he'd kill us all. Why wouldn't he? Well, that's what he's trying to do even with persecution, trying to kill all the Christians in the Middle East and everything else and, you know, ways of persecution. Of course, God would always intervene. Some die as martyrs, but some are, are spared. Uh, if, if, you know, but, but for the hand of God sparing he just kills all. One way to end Christianity, just kill them all. <laughs> uh, we remind him of God. He hates God. The Bible says we are made in the image and likeness of God. To some degree, we kind of look like God. So when you get to heaven, you know, of course, it'll be glorious and, you know, it's not going to be <laughs> this, this failing figure, you know, but I mean... But in a sense, it's going to be very human-like. I mean, I, we are literally made in God's image. You can read about some of the other creatures that God has around the throne. You know, angels with w wings on their backs and their feet and around their faces. I mean, it's like these gigantic mosquitoes flying all over the place, you know, and, and some with the face of a lion and of a bear and just all kinds of, they probably look really cool. You know, but that's not what we look like. We are made in the image and likeness of God every time Satan looks at you. That's why he hates people in general. Always reminds him of this God he cannot stand. He loves to bring death. He loves to bring destruction. He loves to inspire people to hate and to kill each other, armies to go at each other, natural disasters that come. People say, why did God do that? God had nothing to do with it. This is Satan, the work of evil in the world. He so despises the human race. So you need to be on your guard. If it's not, the flesh alone should keep you on your guard. And the world trying to get you to fall. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the Bible talks about, is why you need to be on your guard. If you're not paying attention, that stuff, one of the three is going to get you. It's kind of what he's saying. He says this oftentimes about, you know, be serious, be on guard, you know, pay attention. Have a little bit of fear of God in you. Why? We got nothing to worry about. Yeah, you do. It's called the world, the flesh, and the devil. All these things will try and work to destroy you and, or to defeat you or make your life miserable or whatever version of this that you run into. So to be in your guard, you just have to be aware of this stuff so you're not shocked and surprised when these, these things come against you. So be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Uh, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they dev have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaia, whatever. <laughs> Some names for your kids. 
I'm glad when they showed up because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. So he's just stopping here enough time to acknowledge different people that are making a big difference at that time in the church and in their lives. And he, they were blessing Paul's life and encouraging them. So he's just acknowledging. It's, it's good to acknowledge people because everybody wants to be acknowledged at some level. Do you know why? Actually, I'm be, I might be preaching on this coming up soon. Uh, maybe even Sunday. I'm still playing with it in my head. But uh, uh, talking about men. Men love to be praised. They are drawn to praise and our uh, criticism uh, is abhorrent to them and it will actually discourage them. Something for ladies to know who some love to spend way more time criticizing their husbands than praising them. Oftentimes women will think, well, that's just egotistical. No, no, no. We are made in the image and likeness of God and God is drawn to praise. And everything in his creation is drawn to praise. Why? We don't know, but we are like that. And men in particular, who were that first generation that he made right from the dust, are drawn to praise. You want to help a man succeed? Praise him. Not that you can't point out that, hey, your underwear's on the table. That's fine. All right? We got company coming over. Take your underwear off. Okay, so. Or, you know, it's okay to yell at each other from time to time. But this withering assault upon a man's character and always pointing out what's wrong with him, what's bad with him, how he's a failure and stuff like that, uh, being much more uh, like the fallen angel, Satan, than God, okay? So, but at some point, we all like that. People love to be acknowledged for who they are and what they, what they accomplish, so he does that. Then he ends with the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings, hey y'all. Aquila and Priscilla, we've been reading about them in Acts, greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. You have to remember, the early, early Christianity they didn't have churches like we have. They didn't have buildings. They met in people's homes. There are, uh, there's a small church movement in America still today that people intentionally, they want to be as biblical as possible, and they only meet in churches. Uh, the problem with that is their limit, their effectiveness tends to be rather limited. There's not much success in that that approach today. Uh, but that's what they did. They met in homes. Uh, all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, something Western culture in general does not do. Uh, Latino culture does. Italian culture does. If you're in South America, you're in Italy, if you're a Christian, you walk in the place, everybody's going to kiss you. All right, strangers you've never met will come up and kiss you. That's their way of saying hello and, and shaking your hand. Uh, and again, we'll have that in Latino culture. You go down there, there's a lot more kissing down on that end of the building. All right, and if you see them come up here and you watch me come over and you see, you pay attention. The Latina chicks, we all kiss the Latina chicks, okay? And now in Italy, it's worse because they kiss everybody, chicks and guys. And that's just really gross. That one I didn't like. Kissing the pretty girls, I'm kind of up for that, all right? Kissing ugly guys with beers and yeah, like our razors, you know, stubble sticking out of your, your yeah, ow, ow, and they'd always say, pace, pace, which means peace. They go, pace, pace, rip your face off and go, <laughs> go kiss the next 68-year-old guy, zing, oh, ow, 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 ow. Uh, Anyway, that was, uh, what's other cultures that do this? Uh, in Russia, you see, you see 
world leaders, men kissing each other. I think in France, there's some places they still do it. Just in America, we don't do that. <laughs> but it's very Christian in Christian culture. You should be, bring it back, man. Except I'm not kissing Bob. All right, so. <laughs> I, Paul, but that's a very respectful thing, right, ladies? It's a respectful thing. If you don't do it, I, I, I've, as Latina women in our church, their children, their little girls, uh, when you first introduce them, the first thing to do is they step forward for the kiss. You know, and uh, it's, it's, it's really neat. I love it, I think, like I said, it's great. Anyway, it's not weird. It's just a kiss on the cheek. Nobody's raping anybody, good Lord. All right. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be a curse. <laughs> it's like, holy cow. That's kind of harsh. If you don't love God, a curse on you. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. And he ends with amen. All right, now, next week, which is going to be our final week for the summer, uh, well, we'll have the family nights and stuff like that, but the Bible said it won't start up again until September, right? The first one or whatever. Um, so then we'll be done. So next uh, Wednesday, we will now pick up back in the book of Acts. Remember, he's in Ephesus, and we're going to read what happens to him in Ephesus. It's really kind of a dramatic thing. And shortly thereafter, he writes the second letter to the Corinthians. So these two happen very quickly. The second one is really dramatically different than the first one. Uh, he doesn't get into all these, you know, he's not yelling at him anymore. And in fact, he kind of, you know, wants to kiss and make up with them after because he, he really gets up for the list of all the nasty stuff they were doing. Uh, so the second one, uh, we'll take a look at that. And uh, anyway, we'll be into that in the fall. All right? You may be released and go away. <laughs> Kiss somebody on the way out.